Well, if you have your Bibles, let's turn to that text now. Luke chapter 8 that John read for us earlier. This is actually a special day. Uh, National Back to Church Sunday. That's September 20th. National Back to Church Sunday. Now, fully recognize completely and embrace the fact that many people, uh, health situation, compromised health, or caregivers to others, uh, those people uh, could not, cannot, should not come back to large gatherings such as this at this time. Fully understand that. But you know, this past Thursday, I was uh, hosting the pastor's luncheon that we have here the first Thursday of every month. We have a pastor's luncheon here at the church, and it's a wonderful blessing to share with these pastors uh, across uh, denominational lines. You really wouldn't know there's any denominational lines. I found out if you want to break through denominational lines, just offer good food. That'll knock them down, I'll tell you that. But in our discussion uh, about uh, National Back to Sunday, uh, back to church Sunday, uh, we decided that there are some denominations that need to come to an end. So we just officially designated that, that some denominations need to end on that day, and here's how we've named them. Uh, Pajama Presbyterian needs to cease. Mattress Methodist. Lazy Boy Lutheran. And I'm especially concerned myself that we bring an end to bedspread Baptist, all right? <laughs> Back to church Sunday is September the 20th, and again, we do start groups, and we do hope that all uh, who possibly can will come back and rejoin in two weeks. It will cause just a little different uh, 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 in our schedule, a little difference. Our groups will be held at 9 o'clock and then our worship here in the auditorium uh, at 10.30, okay? So 9 o'clock for groups, 10.30 for our worship in, here in the auditorium, and we also have an overflow worship uh, that's uh, being provided over in the Hub Student Center. So that is two weeks from today. We look forward to that. Now, if you have your Bibles, you've opened to Luke chapter 8. And as you look there, I was thinking this week from this passage, it is just a reminder of what the Lord can do in one day. <laughs> in one day. As long as they lived, these disciples never forgot this day. This day. One day. And as I was thinking about this week, I was thinking about how much God can do in one day, and my mind went back to the account of creation. Of course, you know, in Genesis chapter 1, it tells us of the six days of creation. But it's very interesting to me, literally, how those six days are described. If you were to translate them literally, each one of the days is described this way. There was evening and morning, a day, the first one. Then it says there was evening and morning, a day, the second one. 
Now, I recognize that it's not necessary to be a Christian uh, to believe in the six literal 24 days of uh, 24 hour days of creation. There were six of those. A person doesn't have to believe those days are literal 24 hour days. We are a free people. You still have the right to be wrong, okay? <laughs> but everything that God could do, He was describing what we would understand as a 24 hour period the evening and the morning. A day, the first one, the second one, the third one, so on. Well, my friends, what a day is described here in Luke chapter 8. It begins at verse 22. If you want to look back, it begins with Jesus getting into that boat with his disciples and heading across the Sea of Galilee. And it ends the next day when he is at this home of Jairus with a great miracle, the raising of his little girl from the dead. It is a day that these disciples will never forget. And what did Jesus intend for them to remember about this day? To remember that He is the absolute King, right? He is the King of physical creation. You go out in your life, you enter into storms, He's the King of storms. He is the King of spiritual creation. Coming face to face with the forces of a legion of demons. And he showed he was king over the darkness. And now we're going to see at the close of this 24-hour period, this day, that he is the king of all human creation. He's the king of physical creation. He's the king of spiritual creation. And he is the king of human creation. He is the king of life. The king of Life. Now, the story that John read for us centers on two human lives. Do you notice this? Two human lives. And this is so like Luke in the way he records the history of Jesus' life and ministry as he took notes from so many people who had been eyewitnesses. He was led by the Spirit very often to take contrasting lives and put them side by side for effect. And that's what he's done here. He has taken two human lives and he has juxtaposed them for contrast. And this is very intentionally done by the Spirit. Why? So that we can see in these two human lives in this story, how different they are, how alike they are, how united they are. Now notice this. Two people brought together in a crowd because there is a huge crowd. Jesus and His disciples 
are returning across from the Sea of Galilee. They have just been told to leave by a huge crowd of people at the village of Gerasa who don't want Jesus and His disciples to stay. They have told Him to leave. He gets in the boat. He does leave them one missionary. (laughs) The man out of whom He cast a legion of devils. They cross the Sea of Galilee. It's just a few miles. And they come back to the home area of Capernaum. Home for some of the disciples. The home of operations for Jesus. And when they arrive there on those shores, they are greeted by a sea of people. The Bible tells tells us a huge crowd came to welcome Jesus He gets out of the boat. He begins to walk through those narrow streets of Capernaum. And there is just a massive throng all around him. But out of this crowd, two people converge on him. Two lives. And they are so different. Now the first life is seen in this man... Jairus. Jairus. He is called, you'll notice here, the ruler of the synagogue. Verse 41 says he's the ruler of the synagogue. That means that he is the man who's in charge of all the worship services of the synagogue. He's in charge to make sure everything is handled appropriately. That means that this man is the director of religious affairs in Capernaum. He's also the director of social affairs because the synagogue is the social center of the community. And he's the director of the educational affairs because the synagogue is the center of the education center. So here we have a man named Jairus who is, you might say, the leader of the community. He is the leader of the community. No doubt he's rich. He is very recognized. And he is very respected by the community or he would have never held these positions. He's rich, respected, and recognized, but no one had ever seen Jairus like this. Because this man, in all of his dignity, in all of his beautiful clothing, has run, pushed himself through the crowd. He has flung himself at the feet of Jesus. This leader of the community is down in the dirt, clinging to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's in the dark. You know what Jairus means? Jairus means he will give light. He will give light. Probably meaning Jehovah will give light. He will give light. Well, this man's name means he will give light, but he is in the darkness of despair. Verse 41 describes it. 
there came a man named Jairus who was the ruler of the synagogue falling at Jesus' feet. He implored him to come to his house for he had an only daughter about 12 years of age and she was dying. And as Jesus went, the people pressed around him. His heart's breaking. I don't have to tell anyone here who has been the father of a little girl what this must have been like. His only child, his beloved daughter, 12 years of age, she's on the verge of young adulthood. He's the light of their home. And his child, his wife's child, is dying. Now we're not told how Jairus hears that Jesus is coming. Perhaps he's there with his dying daughter. He hears the ruckus in the streets. The streets are so narrow and they just echo. He finds out somehow that Jesus is returning. And Jairus, this ruler of the synagogue, remembers. What does he remember? He remembers one day, not many months ago, when he was leading in one of the services of the synagogue that it was interrupted by a man who was filled with demons, crying out, running through the synagogue, crying out at Jesus, calling Him the Holy One. Jairus, regardless of what he thought about that display that day, he remembered. He remembered how that man's life was changed. And now here he is, with the darkness of death in his home. His dear daughter's life slipping away. And he knows that Jesus is his only hope. And he runs out the door. You can imagine how crowded the streets are. He pushes, he pushes people out of the way. They've never seen this dignified man act like this. He's running, he's pushing. And finally, when he gets to Jesus, he just flings himself at his feet and begs him. And the text says here, is begging and begging him to come quickly because his daughter is dying. And Jesus agrees. And so you can imagine the scene. You have this dignified man. Maybe he's holding Jesus' arm. Maybe holding on to his robe. He's pushing people out of the way. Dragging Jesus through the streets. He's headed home. He's pulling this rabbi up the streets to get home. His daughter's only hope. And then it happens. Jesus stops. He stops. He 
stand still in the street. Because at that moment, Jesus felt it. He felt it. Maybe Jairus had hold of his arm, but somebody else had touched him. Verse 43 tells us, And there was a woman, not even given her name, there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. Now what a contrast. You have a man perhaps taking Jesus, pulling Jesus. He's, he's the dignified, respected, rich leader of the community. And now behind Jesus, a woman has reached out and just touched him. And Jesus has felt it. And he stops. And Luke tells us, remember, doc, he's Dr. Luke. He's a medical doctor. He tells, her, tells us that she had had a hemorrhaging of blood from her body for 12 years. She had been slowly dying. 12 years of this terrible physical illness Hemorrhaging blood. But friends, you need to know something else. What was even more terrible than the physical illness of hemorrhaging this blood was what it brought to her spiritually and emotionally and relationally. Because you see, according to Jewish law, this constant hemorrhaging of blood made her ceremonially or religiously unclean. That meant for 12 years this woman could not enter the temple. For 12 years she could not enter the synagogue. For 12 years, she's not been able to go in the building where Jairus is the leader of the worship. And on top of that, it has cost her everything. This illness has not just cost her physically. This illness has cost her not only her health, it's cost her her money. She spent all that she's had. It's cost her her relationships. She's now... And touching anyone makes them unclean. Not just is she unclean, but if she touches someone, she's unclean. So she must be outcast from her community and not just her community, her family. It's cost her her health, it's cost her her money, it's cost her her relationships, it's cost her her religion. She can't even go to the house of worship. She's destitute. She's despised. She's disowned. She tried all the cures. And if you just want an idea of what going to the doctor was like back then, here are actually three suggested cures for 
a woman who is suffering a hemorrhaging of blood. This is from the ancient Talmud commentaries on the ceremonial law. Quote, Take of the gum of Alexandria the weight of a small silver coin of alum, the same, or of crocus, the same. Let them be bruised together and given in wine to the woman who has the hemorrhage of blood. That's one. Two, if this does not work, take of Persian onions, three pints, boil them in wine, and give her drink and say, arise from your hemorrhage. Number three, if this does not work, set her in a place, make her sit at a crossroads where two ways meet, let her hold a cup of wine in her right hand, and let someone come up behind her and frighten her and say, arise from your hemorrhage. Oh yeah, that was definitely the practice of medicine. I read you that that is actual medicine that was prescribed for this kind of situation. It would be comedic if it were not so tragic. And somehow, some way, she's heard of a mighty healer. And she feels something that she's not felt in a long time. You know what she feels? She feels hope. She feels hope. If only I can get to him. If only somehow, some way I can figure out a way to get to Jesus. If, if only, and her faith is almost superstitious, but it still has faith in it. If only I can just touch one of the tassels of his garment, I'll be healed. And so these two people, so unlike each other, converge on Jesus out of a crowd. So different. A man, rich, recognized, respected. A woman, destitute, despised, and disowned. They're so different. But now I want you to notice this. They are so alike. As different as these two people are, as different as you can imagine, yet they are so alike because there's one common denominator in their lives and that is the common denominator that brings them to Jesus. They each have a problem beyond human capability. As different as they are in every way, they have a problem beyond human capability. And friends, that's what makes these two people just like us.
because we've all got a problem beyond human capability. They have a common problem beyond human capability, but it's not beyond the Lord. And Jesus is touched by their need. He's touched by the need of Jairus and his dying daughter, and he's touched by this woman and her 12 years of illness. How different the last 12 years have been for Jairus 12 years as he and his wife have seen their child grow up and blossom into a young lady. And 12 years that this woman has seen her life come apart into darkness and slow death. That's what brings them together. Twelve years. Twelve years of happiness and life and accomplishment and everything going right. How could it be better, honey? And twelve years of unmitigated hell on earth. Completely different, but completely the same. They both need Jesus. These two people converge on Jesus. They touch Jesus. And it's interesting, Jesus always knows when someone touches Him. There can be a million hands in the crowd. There can be a billion hands. There can be 15 billion hands on this planet but the Lord knows everyone that touches Him. And He felt it. Verse 46, But Jesus said, Someone touched me. Someone has touched me. Not just bumped up against me. Not, not just passed off. And we've impacted each other. No, 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 no. Someone has intentionally reached out and touched me. Of course, Peter speaks up just to change feet in his mouth. <laughs> Lord! Look around you, Lord, and you're asking, somebody touched me? Really? Jesus said, I know someone's touched me. I have felt virtue go out from me. I felt the power to heal go out from me. Now, why did Jesus stop and ask the question? Have you thought about that? Jesus could have just kept going. The woman was healed. She was healed. As soon as she touched him, she's healed. She knows she's healed. Why does Jesus stop then? And if he stops, then why does he ask the question, who touched me? Because remember, when Jesus asks a question, it's not because he needs information. Jesus never asks a question for information. Jesus asks questions to give revelation that will bring transformation. So why did he ask the question? He asked the question for two reasons. Number one, he wanted to draw out this lady's confession. 
Who touched me? He asked, knowing who touched him, to draw out her confession. Verse 47. And she, she is so overwhelmed, she confesses. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, that's what she hoped. I'll just get my hand through there. And just touch the tassel. But when she, she saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling falling down before him and declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. This is why Jesus asked the question. He's drawing out her confession of faith. I touched you. It was I. I, I, I hoped I could get to you and I believed you could heal me. I touched you. And I confess, you have healed me. <laughs> you see, Jesus, even though you get saved in the crowd, He's given you an individual testimony, right? And He wants you to share it. If you have believed in Jesus, He wants you to confess that faith. That's what Braden did this morning. He confessed his faith publicly in the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants all of us to publicly confess our faith in Jesus Christ and to say, He's changed my life. He asked the question to draw out this lady's confession and He asked the question, secondly, here's the second reason, to confirm the lady's restoration. This is so beautiful. Don't read over it. How did Jesus speak to this woman? He spoke to her this way. He said in verse 48, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. You mark your Bible? I hope you do. This is the only time Jesus ever referred to a woman as daughter. Now remember, Jesus is only 32 or 33 Himself. This woman has had this issue 12 years. So no doubt she's at least the age of Jesus, and she's probably older than Jesus, but He calls her daughter. Daughter. Why? Because he is letting everybody hear. Listen, what has she been? She has been an outcast. She has been unclean. She has been unwelcome. And Jesus with one word brings her back in saying, you're my daughter. You're my family member. You're in my community. <laughs> you may be outcast from others, but you're included in mine. He restored her publicly to relationship with the community of faith. In a moment, her life was changed from tragedy and she became a trophy. A trophy of grace. Notice the grace here. The grace of adoption. Daughter. <laughs> your faith has saved you. And your faith 
has brought you into my Father's family. You are adopted into the the family of God. The grace of adoption. The grace of saving faith. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Now who was it that made her well? Jesus. But what was it that made the connection between a saving Lord and a suffering sinner? Faith. Faith. By the grace of God, she was given hope that Jesus could do what no one else could do. And no matter how hard, no matter how difficult, no one would keep her from touching Jesus. Faith. And what came out of that adoption and saving faith? Here's the grace that came out. The grace of lasting peace. What did He tell her? You go in what? Peace. Having been justified by faith, Paul says, having been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now this wonderful scene, wonderful scene, isn't this a wonderful scene? It's interrupted with terrible news. Because just as Jesus is saying, daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. In that moment, a man arrives. And he tells Jairus that his daughter is lost. Verse 49. While he was still speaking, while Jesus was speaking these words of life, someone came with the words of death. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. What did Jesus just call the woman at his feet? Daughter. Your daughter is dead. Daughter, your faith has made you whole. It's interesting that word Jesus uses there in verse 48 as he talks about a woman's faith, her faith has made you well. That word made you well is almost always in New Testament used for salvation. Your, your faith has made you well, not just. Physically, but spiritually. And then the next word. Your daughter is dead. A daughter who's been made alive and a daughter who's just been pronounced dead. Do you see the scene? And it's interesting what the man says. Your daughter has died. Don't trouble the master anymore. (laughs) Can anything be expressed as more hopelessness? 
your daughter is dead. Don't bother the master anymore. Inference, nothing can be done. You know what also infers? That Jairus has been pulling Jesus along, pulling him along. And he stopped. But while this whole thing's going on, you can imagine how Jairus feels. He's happy for the lady. He's happy. This is a nice confession. Come on. (laughs) This is good. I'm so happy for you. God bless you. Come on, Jesus. Come on. So as as a woman is confessing her faith, faith, a, a man's dragging Jesus. Come on. That's the idea here. And a man, someone says, stop bothering the Master. Your daughter's died. Now it's truly hopeless. Right? Hopeless for, for everyone else, but not for Jesus. Jesus specializes in hopeless cases. Verse 50. He speaks not to the man who said it. He speaks to the father, Jairus. Jesus, hearing this, answered him, Do not fear. Only believe. And she will be well. What had Jesus just said? Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Jairus, what I've just said, what faith has done for this woman, this faith will do for you. Only have faith. You see, faith unites us in that common need. In the common need of Jesus, it's faith that unites people who are not alike at all. And church, don't you ever forget that. An individual Christian, don't ever forget that. People as different as can be in every way are united in their need of Jesus and they are certainly united in the Lord Jesus. In faith. Well, it's such a touching and powerful scene. Verses 52 through 56, you know this story. Jesus goes on to the house And it's the first time he only allows Peter, James, and John to go with him. This is the first time he sort of recognizes the inner circle. He takes only three in. The professional mourners, and they still have professional mourners to this day. They're outside weeping and wailing, playing, the band is playing the instruments, the shrill notes. Wailing and playing the funeral dirge. And as Jesus goes in, he says, stop weeping. For she's not dead, she's sleeping. Of course, everyone believed that. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. This wasn't fainting. This wasn't a coma. She's dead. Jesus goes, takes the girl by the hand, saying, Child, arise. In Aramaic, Talitha, kum. Talitha, 
Kum. Little one. Rise. Notice. And her spirit returned. And just like a pre-teenager, she got up at once. <laughs> and every parent of a preteen knows that. The only way they seem to get up at times, except on school morning. She got up at once. And just to show that Jesus knew her need and also to show that it was a true resurrection, he's directed that something should be given to her to eat. And then he doesn't want this little girl and her family to become an object of just such notoriety that it disrupts their family. And he told them not to tell anyone what had happened. Jesus wanted that peaceful scene for a while anyway to remain peaceful. Don't go out and tell the crowd. Just let them mom and dad and little girl have this moment together. Two lives so different, two lives so alike, and two lives so united. They're united in the experience of the Lord's grace. Grace is what has united these two. The grace of restoration. Verse 46, he said to her, your faith has made you well. Your faith has restored you. And the grace of a resurrection. That's what we see here. The picture of the gracious power of Jesus in a restoration of healing and a resurrection to life. Jesus gives life to the dead. As a matter of fact, isn't this something Jesus even redefines death? He redefines death. What is death for a follower of Jesus? It's when your spirit leaves your body and goes to be with the Lord. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 5.8, We are of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body... We are away from the Lord. What is death for a believer? Death is not the end. It's just the beginning. It's just transferring from this temporary home in which your spirit resides to your eternal home. But my friend, you know what? Jesus not only redefines what it means for a Christian to die, listen carefully, Jesus has reclaimed every believer's body. Because Jesus said this, because I live, you're going to live also. And because I've risen from the dead, you're not just going to have a spiritual release, but your body will rise. And be glorified like my body. 
and your spirit and your body will be rejoined on the day of the resurrection. This is what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 4.14. Think about the coming of Jesus. Think of who's coming with Jesus. You think we're going to Jesus? Yes, we're going to Jesus if you're a Christian, but there are those who are coming with Jesus. Verse 14, 1 Thessalonians 4, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with Him those who have what? Fallen asleep. What is death for a Christian? Your spirit goes to be with the Lord and your body goes to sleep in the grave. It goes to rest. Until the Lord Jesus comes. And when He comes, He's bringing the spirits of His people with Him. And their bodies will rise from the dead and restored body and soul perfected forever to ever be with the Lord. Friend, that's what Jesus has done. He's redefined death. It's just the Spirit leaving your body for a while. He's redefined death. Your body will die, but it will live. And you will live forever. Praise God, what a Savior. See, He's the King of life. Listen to me, friends. Our God's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. And your loved ones may have left recently in Christ, or they may have been gone now for generations, but they live. Yesterday I found a quiet place on my dad's 109th birthday. And I thanked my God that my father lives. He's my Father's God. And I will praise Him. He's my God. And I will exalt Him. From generation to generation, His people live before Him. Friend, what are you facing? I can't imagine. But will you hear Jesus' voice? Don't be afraid. Only believe. The best is yet to come. Believe. Friend, listen. The storm may be in your heart, but it won't last forever. The storm may be in your family, but it won't go on eternally. The storm may be in our nation and in this world, but you mark it down. The Prince of Peace is coming. And there's coming the day where there'll be no war. No war on the inside. No war on the outside. Perfect peace. Because the kingdom of peace will come to the heart of every person, to the life of every person who reaches out by faith and lays hold of Jesus. You bow your head in prayer. Oh, friend, take hold of Jesus just as you are.
just as you are. That's how you have to come. Just as this man came, everything was going great in his life and the bottom fell out and only Jesus could help him. This lady's life had been torment for years. Only Jesus could help. And both of them came to Jesus. They came just as they were. They came broken. And Jesus healed them both. Friend, He'll heal you today. Will you come to Him today? Will you come to Christ today? Bring Him what's in your heart. Bring the storm. Bring the pain. Bring whatever it is. Bring the memories. Bring the unforgiveness, the bitterness. Bring the fear. Bring it all to Jesus. Bring it to Him. Jesus feels every touch. He knows every hand reaches out to Him. Our heads are bowed. No one will embarrass you. I wonder if there's just something you just need to give to the Lord right now. You're bringing it to the Lord right now. Would you just lift up your hand as a testimony? I'm bringing this to you right now, Lord Jesus. That's right. Just lift it up. I'm bringing this to you. Lord, you see our hands. You know our hearts. And I just pray that your peace would reign now in lives that come to you. In Jesus' name, and God's people said,